Hi, this is Denise from the Marielles podcast. I filmed this episode a couple days ago with Irene, and I'm really happy with the way it turned out. And then I spoke to Gahandias Tafut, and she lives on the Ganawage territory. So her answers are edited into this episode, um, albeit badly and a little choppy, but it was really important that she was included in the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Call me in the afternoon, even by one, by one. Call me in the afternoon, even by one, by one. So I invited Irene on this episode about uh, residential schools because um, you are a passionate person. You're also my social justice friend, and you have become... Um, interested in uh, aborig- indigenous, indigenous yeah. Aboriginal issues, and you spent some time in Northern Quebec teaching or helping out at a high school. Yeah, and I also taught at a high school this semester. Taught at a high school this semester. So you came to mind that that's the only qualification you have. Hi, my name is Kahandios Tafoot. I live on the Gunawage Mohawk territory just outside Montreal, Quebec. To be honest, when I was approached to discuss residential schools, Immediately after reading those words, my heart just sank, and I felt super heavy. But then I thought about it, and I knew that it was my duty to share information and educate others. Uh, Specifically on residential schools, I mean, we're definitely going to talk about it. In my opinion, it's the darkest uh, component of Canadian history, although it is a small chapter in just the ongoing story of genocide against Indigenous peoples here. Um... There are terrible things that happen in Canada towards pretty much every racialized person you can think of, uh, anyone LGBTQ, things like that. Um, Canada's got some dark past, but this is one that I think is uh, the most jarring even to people who don't know that much about the history and don't know that much about social justice. It's, um, it's, it's very troubling to think this happened here. I was embarrassed initially because I didn't know anything and upon my research I was like why why don't why was this jumped over and I think yeah like like we mentioned earlier it's important to note that I went to a public elementary school and that's where a lot of Quebec history Quebec history was like 50% of our curriculum and yeah, if not more in elementary school is like all of it all of it was French all in French and all uh, Quebec history. And so I guess we talked about the Indian Act. I remember very uh, specifically learning about the Indian Act. Interesting. And like, I don't remember that at all. And like the teacher being like, this is this is what happened. It sucks, but this is what happened. But like a whole jump. Maybe it was glazed over. I don't know. And then in high school, nothing. I got to say, I have no memory of that. I Like it's before, like we learn about Quebec history and Canadian history I feel like at the beginning of when European settlers came, like we learned hunters and gatherers, we yeah. learned like like the Iroquois and the the fishing and the summer Mizalong. hunters. Yes, but then and then not modern because this happened. This only ended in ninety six. Yeah, it did. It, it's incredibly modern. That was the year you were born. Yeah, that like, was the year I was born. Um, so I have a kind of an interesting story too regarding like just the history of my involvement in Indigenous issues because I was just like you. I knew nothing. Um, like I, most people. Like most people here. Uh, apparently it is being taught now because mm-hmm. there, people have really been like pushing it for so long. But, you know, we were like, I guess the last generation that was like clueless about this stuff until they entered like higher education. 
Because it doesn't become history until it stops happening. Exactly. And so, other than before that, they don't want to fess up. They don't want to admit to it. It's not happening under the rug. And if it only ended in 96 and it was only declared bad and, like, there was an apology a decade later, later that's after our our educational mm-hmm. our educational career, right? So, like, it, it's only history when it stops happening yeah. <laughs> and, and it becomes acknowledged. And so it wasn't the history when we were learning about it. It was present. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen Harper did make an apology, but I want to acknowledge that I did learn he was at some kind of press conference and he said that Canada has no history of colonialism. He said something like, I'm proud to say Canada has no history of colonialism. And they were like, but what? <laughs> uh, ooh, ooh, okay. Also, like, this don't sit right with my spirit. In elementary school, we did learn about the Maison Long and the patriarchal and the matriarchal. Iroquois was matriarchal. Algonquin was patriarchal. It was like these broad overviews, but I mean, to be fair, there are like quite a lot of nations. It would take quite a bit of time to go through them. But what's very interesting is that I actually thought they didn't exist anymore. Interesting. Yeah. And we used to do hockey in Ganawage. Oh yeah. my god, yes. Yeah. Kanawage. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ganawage is how it's like actually pronounced. But it doesn't matter. Kanawage. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, I can see. This the, is why I invited Irene. The only reason I know that is because that's the high school I was teaching at. But um, anyway, so uh, yeah, so we would play hockey there. And it's really interesting because um, I didn't know that's what they were. Me neither. <laughs> right? No one told us. No one told us nothing. And and do you remember how they used to say those kids are so aggressive? You have to be, you have to really be aggressive back because those kids are like violent. Do you remember this? Yes, and I like that's racism straight up. When I was doing research, I was talking to Phil about this, yeah. and I was, I, I, I said the exact same thing. Like, I remember going, and I was, I would always complain, like, oh, why do we have to drive all the way to them? Why don't they ever come to us? Like, things that we didn't understand at the time, right? And yeah. then I remember thinking, thinking that their uh, arena and their services, like, were like, oh, they have, like, the shittiest arena. Like, I remember that, too. I remember them having, like, a bench or something. Yeah. And I was like, where is their, like, stance? Like, you're an we're, idiot when you're a kid. First of all, we're... We're in elementary school. We're young kids. We are incredibly privileged. And not understanding where we were going or what we were seeing. And also nobody telling us. And being like, hey, Denise, there's a reason it's this way. Yeah, these people were here first. Nobody said nothing like that. I remember thinking, like, uh, that it was far. It was always hard to get to. Their facilities weren't up to par as our facility. I wish somebody smacked me back then. I was like, why do we always have to go to them? Why don't they ever come to us? No, very obvious reasons. That that could have been explained. Nobody told us nothing. Exactly. You know when I became aware that they were still around? Twilight. I'm not even joking. (laughs) When Twilight came out, (laughs) Jacob was in it, right? And I was like, the smoking hot man, like, who is he? But that is also problematic because they're comparing indigenous communities with werewolves and, like, the other and the, they're comparing them to non-human, um, animalistic. Very good call. I actually didn't even make that connection. I was just annoyed that they obviously did not cast someone who was He's from... He's a werewolf. They made indigenous people in Twilight into these, like, half-animal half-animal things. And I, I sort of get where Again, I, I'm not super familiar with their culture, but like they have, they have, they're, they're strongly, they're strongly linked to nature. They feel as part of nature. So and stuff, yeah. So I also get it, but it's a lot of it problematic. Problematic. But in a weird way, I'm almost glad it existed because that was the first time I ever realized these people are still exist. I didn't even know it was in Canada. I thought it was just in the states. I was like, oh, okay. I guess tribes exist. I also like, thought that too. And um, but another like arbitrary thing we need to learn is like all 
like they're all North America, right? Because countries didn't exist when they were all roaming free. Yeah, no borders. Like there were no like borders. Yeah. So I remember having like meeting indigenous people and saying he had an American passport, and he was just like, "Yes, but I'm really passports don't apply to me." I remember him saying, "It's like I'm Canadian and American. Like I'm a person of North America." Yeah, there's like, a treaty that I, I actually just went to a talk on this. There's a treaty where they can pass freely between the nations, and they shouldn't be allowed to be stopped. There was this whole legal case about it in the okay. 1920s. The only reason I know about this is because of this. Yeah. Like, Absolutely. Talk. But this guy, Paul K. Daibo, he tried to cross. He was actually from Ganawage. And um, he basically, they stopped him and they tried to arrest him. And he was like, but this treaty exists. Um, but the treaty had existed since 1790-something, 1794, I want to say. Yeah. And How many treaties? Oh, <laughs> uh, so many treaties. And so many of them have just been ignored. But they, this case was really groundbreaking because he actually won. Okay. That's why it like was really like history in the making. But that's probably what your friend means when yeah. he says, like, oh, Passports don't apply to me. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I'm a citizen of North... I'm a citizen of the world. He said that, but, like, more applicable to his circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that was the first time I became aware that they um, existed. I only found out about residential schools when I got to CJEP because a boy that I knew was reading a book called... Uh, I think it was just recently made into a movie, Indian Horse. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's when I learned about residential schools. And I'm embarrassed because I was at like 19, yeah. 18, 19 years Absolutely. old. Way, way too late, you know. And I knew nothing about the problematic relationship between the church and the clergy and indigenous people. I had no idea because you see statues of it everywhere. There's a statue at Marianopolis of a nun with little indigenous kids like tugging on her skirt. And that's cute in theory. It's cute in theory. <laughs> exactly. But it sounds adorable. <laughs> um. In university, I took this unicorn class, and I call it that because it was it was taught once and then never again. But that's just because the teacher moved, and she was a great teacher. Her name was Lindsay. I forgot her last name. We all called her by first name basis. Okay, and cool. uh, it was communications. It was prison. It was prison and television class. And mm-hmm. I think I talked to but talked to you about this. But a good portion of uh, Canada's prisons are filled with Indigenous and Aboriginal people. Yeah, I think it's like, what, like almost half despite only being like 8% of the population or something? And what shocked me more is that there are, the pers- the probability of an Indigenous Canadian person ending up in prison is more, there are more Indigenous Canadian people in prison than Black people in prison in the U.S. <gasps> that was, I re- exactly. And Whoa, if, hold And if on. you watch the uh, the documentary, the 13th Amendment, it's about prisons, and it, this is this is parallel to our topic, but... Mm-hmm. Um, Fun fact, did you know Canada has for-profit pr- prisons? A lot of people think that's just in the States. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. I feel like I took you off topic. No, completely. <laughs> I completely forgot what I was going to say. But The 13th uh, Amendment. That's when I learned all about residential schools and like why there were so many indigenous people incarcerated and it was in this prison class. Mm-hmm. And I got to say thank you to Lindsay because then we saw a lot of documentaries. We saw a lot of indigenous television shows. Shall I go through the facts? Go for it. Okay. So uh, um, I just want to disclose I didn't do any research before this, so I hope I don't say anything like too too wrong. But if I do, I'm sure. Yeah, we're not historians, to. and we're not um, we're not studying this. We're not academics. We just this is just what's accessible. On in my case, I did all the research. This is what's accessible on Google. Mm-hmm. I watched um, a Fifth State episode about residential schools. I saw. I think I saw that too. Yeah, it was yeah. really good. I guess I'll just dive right in. Unfortunately, due to many, many decades of cultural assimilation, growing up, my parents didn't raise me to be a very traditional person, and that's no fault to them. 
The elementary school I went to was the most quote-unquote English school in the community, and then I went to a private Catholic high school off the reserve, continued my education attending Vanier College, Concordia University, and then McGill University in Montreal. So most of my friends were from out of town. I didn't really have a deep connection with my culture, because growing up, I mean, I would celebrate all the events with my school, like the Harvest Festival, Strawberry Festival, and so on. But somehow it was all lost on me. There was always a disconnect. I think that it started when my maternal grandfather was taken from his home and forced to attend a residential school when he was young. In the school, the children were told not to speak their primary language, which for him was Mohawk, and if they did, they would be punished. They were abused mentally, physically, emotionally, and sexually. These schools, they were just all about punishment, coercion, and control. The poor students were stripped away of their identities. So when he came back home, he wasn't the same. He was conformed to this new way of thinking and being, and as you can imagine, he was traumatized. The long-term impact of residential school on survivors includes psychological issues such as heightened feelings of anger, anxiety, low self-esteem, depression, PTSD, and high rates of suicide, just to name a few. And as it turns out, the number one challenge for First Nations communities is substance abuse, which I'll touch on in a second. As for my grandfather, time passed for him. He grew up, met my Duda, which is grandmother. They got together, had a bunch of babies. Life seemed pretty good. However, there was always these unresolved issues. So he coped with it the best way he knew how, which was drinking. I told you we'd get back to it. Alcohol abuse over time can lead to different health problems. Unfortunately, he developed a liver disease and passed away when my mother was 16. So in Canada, the Indian residential school system was a network of boarding schools for Indigenous peoples. The network was funded by the Canadian government's Department of Indian Affairs and administered by the Christian churches. The school system was crafted for the purpose of removing Indigenous children from the influence of their own culture and assimilating them into the dominant Canadian culture. Oh, do you know about kill the Indian to save the child? That's the next line, to kill the Indian in the child, or to kill the Indian and save the child. Mm -hmm. There are different versions of that. Over the course of the system's more than 100-year existence, about 30% of Indigenous children, about 150,000, were placed in residential schools nationally. The number of school-related deaths remain unknown due to incomplete historical records, but the estimates range from over 3,000 to upwards of 6,000. Mm -hmm. mostly due to poor nutrition let's, yeah let's put it that way it's actually very interesting because i i don't know enough about this but this is something really worth looking into especially to the audience if they're interested i did read that that was actually a study they actually were trying to study the effects of poor nutrition on children and they didn't have a subject uh, like it, it's all just i don't know if i told you this but Marielles, yes it's Marielles because we are Montrealers. But you're but supposed to be Alaise. Yes. Okay. <laughs> this is... Okay, too dark, too dark. Marielle too dark. and Malalaise. Okay, like, okay. That's the feeling you're supposed to feel. Um, also, I want to note that the rabbits haven't been scared off. They're literally just listening. <laughs> like, we're they're screaming. Chilling, they're chilling. <laughs> in the background. There's two of them. I anticipate they're going to start should go, like, sit in the grass or something. <laughs> yeah, surround us. <laughs> right. Um... So the system had its origins and laws enacted before the Confederation, but it was primarily active from the passage of the Indian Act in 1876. An amendment to the Indian Act in 1884 made attendance at the day schools, industrial schools, or residential schools compulsory for First Nation, Nation children. So it was it was compulsory, and there are there are stories of you know 
people going into reserves and collecting children. And then there are even cases of RCMP officers forcefully removing children from their homes. Yeah. And then there are outright epi- like stories and incidents of kidnapping. Like yeah. kids just like walking and then more ki- children are coerced into a vehicle with promise of candy. Like very Stop. like candy and like come with me, I'll take you to where you're going. And then their parents don't know where they are and yeah. they're and they're brought to these residential schools. And they're it's a it's a boarding school because they thought the least amount of exposure to their parents mm-hmm. so that they weren't so they didn't learn at school and then go home and then be reintroduced to their culture. Yeah. And um it was actually far from reserves on purpose, yeah. so that the kids can run away. They could kids can run away, but they could less incentive. Like it was harder to visit them when they were further away. Um, the schools were intentionally located at substantial distances from indigenous communities to minimize contact between families and their children. Indian Commissioner Hader Reed argued for schools at greater distances to reduce family visits, which he thought interacted efforts to civilize indigenous children. Paternal visits were further restricted by the use of the pass system designed to confine indigenous peoples to reserve. Do you know about the pass system? That sounds familiar, but I couldn't tell you. So it was uh, the pass system was that this is this is the weirdest thing to me because it was never written in law and it was never like passed and it wasn't part of the Indian Act. It was just a law that people created and just enforced without without reason like not without reason but it wasn't written anywhere like you could challenge it it was just like a word of mouth law interesting so it was really just people with their own like racial prejudices that were like you know what i want this law to be a thing literally and it caught on and like so much that like the indigenous people internalized and was like well yeah so you couldn't leave your reserve without written permission oh yeah can't have heard of this yeah but like and then so if you didn't have written position and you were stopped like you could be brought back you were brought back to your reserve and or like, thrown in jail for a little bit. <laughs> I know like, that they believed, and it's probably related, maybe they were at different times, though, I know that they believed that they had to ask the permission of the Indian agent in ex- order to leave the reserve. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, whoever you needed permission from varied, depending on where you were, just to illustrate that it wasn't real law. Mm-hmm. Like, it wouldn't be... <sighs> okay. So, uh, the last federally operated residential school closed in 96 called Gordon Indian Residential School and was located in Saskatchewan. I don't know why, but schools operate in every province and territory except New Brunswick and PEI. I just don't know why. So, education is supposed to be a provincial jurisdiction. However, in the case of indigenous people, it became a federal federal jurisdiction. So, that's why it was just different for these people. And then what... So, it was part of... They, there was a there was a part of the government that was that was in charge of indigenous affairs and they commissioned they funded they built they got the, the land but they then gave the responsibility to I, it's not just catholicism but all the but religion branches mm-hmm. of of christianity and they operated the churches mm-hmm. so in the podcast that i made you listen to <laughs> the alarmist she finds people who are to blame okay so this episode is going to be a little different because it's very, I think it's, it's very pretty transparent who's to blame, but I don't know how much do you blame the, the religious, cause they're the people, let's talk about what's wrong. They were the front line. People. Yeah. They were the front yeah. line. Cause they, if they showed kindness, had they, you know, like the, like, okay, let's, mm-hmm. so kids were ripped first between the ages of seven and 16, and then it got shortened to six to 15. So imagine being a six year old, not living with your parent. You're not taught math 
or science or anything we traditionally learn. It's yeah. shoemaking, sewing. Um, they were taught what farming. they practical skills. They were trying to teach the kids more of a trade because I yeah. think their whole expectation was that these Low. children are not going to get higher education, so we're just going to teach them a trade. The problem is that a lot of schools didn't even do that. The problem is that a lot of schools just made the kids clean up the building. Right, there was manual labor mm -hmm. involved too. Child manual labor. Knowing my grandfather's story breaks my heart, but fills it with pride at the same time. Pain for him, but pride for my mother. My mother had always been dealt a difficult hand in life, time after time. She's one of the most resilient people I've ever met. Although she herself has some intergenerational trauma that was inevitably passed on to me and my sisters, she carries such strength and respect, and I completely admire her. However, because her dad was stripped of his identity and culture, he was not able to pass on traditions to his children as his ancestors had done before him. Indian day schools is also part of the reason I'm, I'm distanced from my culture. Day schools were very similar to residential schools. Run by the church, they still assimilated natives, threatened, punished, and abused students, and they pushed Catholicism onto them. The only difference was that the students could go home at night. And Ganwage had one of the highest numbers of federal Indian day schools in Canada. There was 11 in my small community. To put it into perspective, there's only four elementary schools and one high school today. Yeah. My mother and I attended the same elementary school decades apart. However, at her time, it was still an Indian day school. And luckily, by the time I got around to it, the school was run by the community and did a great job promoting the culture and pretty much worked hard to undo the damage of centuries worth of colonization, which is why I participated in the traditional ceremonies that I spoke of before. And I rather enjoyed my time there. Okay, so again, you're six years old when you come into this. And because boys or girls are separated, they separate, not only did they separate you within the school from your friends, they separated you from your family. So like yeah, if your brother your was on the other side of the school, you never had classes with him, you never ate, he was essentially a, a stranger. And then at six Sometimes 16, it would be years between seeing your sibling. Exactly, years between seeing your sibling and you come out and you don't know your sibling at all. So isolation and the, I don't know if this is one of the biggest problems, but one, a big problem is, okay, so you, you graduate from the system, you speak, you, were, you weren't able to speak your language at all, completely at all. You were dressed differently. You know, a lot of indigenous people have long braided hair. It's part of their culture. It was buzzed and you were put in like Westerner clothing, European clothing. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, so you at 16, you're out of this school, you go back to your parents, and your parents don't recognize you, you have, no, you, you have nothing to talk about, because you don't speak your indigenous language, and they don't know English. Yeah, not only that, there was a lot of resentment between the children and their of parents. Of course, it's like you abandoned me, but also you left, and also self-hatred, because you're yeah. taught that a lot, that anything Re of color of, is evil, and yeah. so you, your parents are the person that brought you exactly. into life in, you under think, these conditions. Yeah, and you just think your parents are just kind of like, you, you're taught so that you're culture yeah exactly your whole culture is uh worthless or um you know barbaric you know and that's how you're gonna look at your parents when you come back absolutely that's what you're conditioned to do but then okay so you're you're trained as like this european western canadian you're canadian eurocentric canadian person but also it's not like the rest of the white people were conditioned to welcome indigenous people, right? Mm -hmm. So then, so they felt like they weren't indigenous. They completely felt ostracized from that community, but also they weren't white. It's not like they were 
indoctrinated and like held with open arms into this other community so they were completely isolated alone and awful yeah it was awful and this will come back when we talk about who's to blame i do have a culprit i think but um I don't think the Canadian government had any intention of helping these kids in any way. Really? You no. don't think like they were trying to assimilate them and this is what they thought, you know? I think maybe some people viewed it as like a missionary, like, oh, let's save these kids sort of thing. But I honestly believe it came from an economic place. So, for example, land, okay? Um, really what the Canadian government uh, has always wanted and continues to want today is land. The, the little land that they have um, allotted to Indigenous people, um, that the Indigenous people have fought tooth and nail to defend, um, the Canadian government wants that because that's resources. And that's Absolutely. how capitalism works, you know? And the more you distance people from their culture, the less they're going to feel like they have any kind of, you know, uh, connection to this land. And the more willing they're going to be able to give it up. Not just that, but there's, under the Indian Act, there's laws regarding marriage. And so if you let's say, assimilate the child, it's uh, more likely that the child will marry someone who is a settler or non-Indigenous. And within they one lose. generation of that, that their children do not have access to that land anymore, do not have access to those services anymore. So I really think it was coming from an economic place. And, uh, and even the churches, it's coming from an economic place. Because, for example, the kids, the funding was given on a per capita basis. So the more kids you had in the building, the more money you got as a school. Yeah. Okay? And that's why it was so overpopulated. There was so much disease. I don't know if you know this, but there were some schools in which 50% of the children who attended them died. Um, it's absurd to think that you could enter a school and then by the time you leave, uh, half your class is not alive anymore. Um, but that's... the, the Poor sanitation, poor, you know, close proximity, close, uh, you know, spread of disease. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, they obviously didn't have the best hygiene services either, you know. Which is ironic because one of the classes they were taught was hygiene. Wow. How condescending is that? Wow, it's a slap in the face. It's, um, it's so disrespectful. And, yeah, so I, I think, honestly, everyone was just functioning with a money, money, money mentality. I think maybe some people thought they were doing the right thing. Like, maybe some people in the church, I've seen some plays about this, like, where there were people in the church, or according to their diaries, they, they thought they were doing a good thing. Yeah. And then they kind of would realize that they weren't going out about it in the right way, but they were silenced by their superiors. And the Canadian government, I'm sure there's officials who thought they were doing the right thing too. But I think once you actually enter that world, once you actually see what was going on with these kids, uh, I think most people realize that it was very wrong. And the only thing that was keeping them silent was economic pressures from their boss or anything like that. The reason I am I'm want to attack the church for a little bit Go is because it. the government provided facilities and maintenance while the churches provided teachers and their own lesson planning. So everything that went on in the school was the church like the government yes. was not was not not that they weren't responsible they were absolutely responsible but they weren't they weren't involved in day-to-day -day actions so i don't know if the government was like hey don't teach these children math or science hey like i don't know how much of that obviously the abuse was was the catholic uh, was the church was, was the greco-european yeah. what is the term they use here Western roman Man? catholic oh yeah roman roman catholic roman catholic church of england anglican church and um presbyterians so religion they like they were responsible for like abuse 
but it could have also been like the government is turning the blind eye on purpose and they, they were already a neglected population so why yeah the government officials definitely knew what was going on uh or if they didn't which is unlikely i actually read a lot of uh the document that came out the truth and reconciliation report there yeah uh, that came out back in 2015 they very much knew what was going on and even if they didn't the government should have been questioning why don't we have numbers of these children coming out like why don't we know how many kids are actually in the school and it's because so many of them were passing away that the church refused to release those numbers you yeah. know um as a result the number of schools per denomination was less a reflection of the the presence of the church of the general population or the presence of indigenous people but rather the legacy of their missionary work so it, it they also saw it like Yes, they got schools per funding, but it's like we're better Christians because we could reach more people. Yeah. Oh, it's very competitive. Yeah, it's a com exactly. Yeah. That's what it is. It's a competition. It's a competition. Here, God, I'm better. I I can reach more students. I yeah. could. I could. Uh, Actually, yeah. fascinating because what the culprit seems to be for me, and it's really not like a, a fun answer. It's not an answer that everyone can get behind because it's not. It's abstract. It's not a bad guy. But it's Western ideology mm -hmm. and capitalism. Those are the culprits that I can see. It's the Western mentality that you are imperialism. allowed. Imperialism. Yeah, sorry. Western imperialism, yeah. I should say. And capitalism. Well, they're all, they're all linked. Yeah, they are. And that's those are the two most glaring bad guys I can see here. If neither of those things had entered the picture, this wouldn't have happened. Well, these began in a twofold way. So, well, yes. it, be, it, began, it began earlier. So, we have been... We have been torturing and killing indigenous people since we settled in North America. So that's the first. So it's not like, oh, suddenly we're going to do it. This is what this has worked for us so far. So yeah. let's continue to do that. But it, it was twofold. So the, the governor general, Charles Bagot, Bagot, I don't know how to pronounce that. B-A-G-O-T. Bagot? No, I don't know. Bagot? Bagot? I have no idea. <laughs> um, entitled Report on the Affairs of the Indians in Canada, referred to as the Bagot <laughs> Report, and um, seen as the foundational document for the federal residential school system. And it was supported by James Bruce, the 8th Earl of Elgin, who has been impressed by the industrial schools in the West Indies, and Egerton Ryerson, who was the Chief Superintendent of Education in Upper Canada. He must be the Ryerson oh, University guy. Go. So, like, let's go. We, we, we destroyed the, the Redskins. Maybe we'll, <laughs> maybe we'll head for Ryerson next. Yeah. Um, on, yeah, sorry. It's not the Redskins. What is it, though? Was it the Redskins? Wasn't it the Redskins, the McGill team that they changed the name of? No, I'm trying to blame. Rednecks? Red, red, red face or something. I thought it was like Redskin. No, cause because I remember because there's an color... actual team called the Redskins. Yeah, there is. Okay, here's the difference, though. Redman! Redman! Here's the difference, though. Yeah. Uh, not to defend McGill, but because yeah. they changed and they apologized and that was fine. But their color was red. So, like, they're physically wearing red. So they mm -hmm. tried to make a Redman, like, oh, no, we're not talking about Indigenous. But the yeah. other but the other NFL team who actually does Redskin, that is fully a racial slur because their mm -hmm. little icon is a little Indian with a feather. Yeah. I'll tell you about what happened with McGill. So there is documentation. Maybe that should be another episode. It would be great. Write that down. Okay. <laughs> um... But there is a, a basically a, a document apparently that says that the Redman name came from the Irish and their red beards. Um, but the problem is that I like that. That's actually cute. It is cute. But it's, it's modern. Just, it's a modern day slur, so you can't use it regardless. It's not only just that, but the way it was construed in history. So at sports matches, they would like kind of dress up with the black paint and the mohawk and stuff like that. Like the kids, the students were the ones who were like, "Oh, Redman, Indigenous people." Yeah. 
And yeah. what was especially offensive about it is that you actually couldn't attend higher education at that time without giving up your Indian status. Yeah. Everything's a slap in the face. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm so enraged here. <laughs> bleeding at every corner. Like, it's terrible. Uh, Okay, I'll get to this part. There's a little part of facts. Let's go through. Okay, so uh, Ryerson in 1847 wrote a letter um, asserting North American Indians could not be civilized or preserved in a state of civilization except in connection with, if not by the influence of any religious instruction and sentiment, but of religious feeling. So only, so he decided, I don't know what made him the expert. He was the governor general, so he represented the queen. And he was like, this is the only, they cannot be, I think that's self-explanatory, but they cannot be civilized except by church. And um, so this letter was published as an appendix to a larger report entitled Statistics Representing Indian Schools. Okay. And that's, so then John A. McDonald came from Scotland. And um, I want to know your opinions on him. So he was the one who put in part the Aboriginal Affairs Committee, and that's who ran the residential schools. And um, I have not great opinions. So the Gradual Civilization Acts um, awarded 50 acres of land to any indigenous male deemed sufficiently advanced in the elementary branches of education and would automatically enfranchise him, removing him any tribal affiliation or treaty rights. So there were all these incentives to be not aboriginal. So you come into this land, you you move thousands of people off their land, and you take the land from them and then tell them they can only have it back if they change who they are. And then, therefore, lose any privilege is a really soft word for what it is. But then you lose any privilege of being part of that world. Because the Indian Act decided that that indigenous people were not really Canadian because they couldn't vote. So it's, it's sort of like, fine, you don't want to... You don't want to be part of us. Be your own thing. Stay on your land. Be, go over there. You're not part of us. You know, so it's literally... There's... there's what is it called when it's one or the other? What is that term called? It's very binary. Yeah. Um, there's more than that, even. First things first, it's not even just that they're separate. It's not even just that, like, oh, the Indian Act said that, okay, you can live on your land and we won't bother you. It's even less than that. It's yeah. more like we're the parent authority and you're the child. You can't vote. You can't do anything by yourself. You can't hold ceremony. Basically, they had to police everything Indigenous people did because they didn't think they were capable of any. The privilege kind of concept, okay, this is... Another huge slap in the face, okay? So when the indigenous people started um, trading, um, let's say, certain benefits for their land, the benefits that were promised were health care, housing, education, and something else I want to say. Um, it might even be the not paying of, uh, I think, certain federal tax right. or something. Um, or the federal tax thing was something entirely separate. But that was basically what they were trading. So that's their contract. Okay, the contract is that indigenous people get access to these things without having to pay certain taxes. Okay, so it's really a huge slap in the face to be like, okay, you can get access to all these different like services and whatever, but you have to give up your indigenous identity because it's just kind of like they they gave you everything, you know, and you can't even deliver on your one promise. You know, you can't. They're constantly kind of like holding the Indian Act stuff in front of them like oh you're gonna lose your privilege if you do this oh you're like your privilege you're gonna lose your benefits if you do this you're gonna lose your benefits if you do that and it's like why why is it on such a fine line like they did what they had to do they tried the trade was made the contract is there they're holding up their end of the bargain you still have their land so why is it so easy for them to lose these benefits that were agreed upon mutually 
if even. I wouldn't even say it was mutual because the indigenous people really had their hands tied. Um, so it's really just so disrespectful. It's so disrespectful that the Canadian government could even be constantly threatening their Indian status when that was part of the contract and the indigenous people were supposed to be guaranteed that forever, this Indian status concept, which is not even very generous to them, all things considered, all things that they've given up and had to endure, you know? Get riled up. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> it goes without saying that, uh, I didn't I didn't read it, but it goes without saying that the legacy of the system has been linked to an in- increased prevalence of post-traumatic stress, alcoholism, substance abuse, and suicide, which persists within the indigenous communities today, and it's cross-generational. Nevertheless, you can see how all this intergenerational trauma and colonialism trickles down the bloodline to me, and how I discussed the disconnect I felt towards my heritage. For those who don't know what intergenerational trauma is, it's the transmission of historical oppression and its negative consequences across generations. Some characteristics of this are high rates of psychological distress, unresolved grief, hypervigilance, needing a high level of control, depression, anxiety, family violence, self-destructive behaviors, and suicidal thoughts. I, for one, know that I'm guilty of a few of those mentioned, and so are so many people from my community. It's honestly such a strange feeling and hard to describe. It's like you're carrying around someone else's grief, and you have no clue why. (laughs) I think with each passing day, the younger generation that I'm a part of, they're working so hard to revitalize the culture. On on June 11, 2008, Prime Minister Stephen Harper offered a public apology on behalf of the government of Canada and the leaders of the other federal parties in the House of Commons. Nine days prior, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established to uncover the truth about those schools. That was the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, those hearings where everybody came forward. That was excellent. That was heavily featured in the documentaries I saw. And I noticed a lot of the documentaries I saw, like, were like, this happened, this happened, it sucks, it sucks, it sucks, but this is what we're doing about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, which, like, I stopped watching at that point because that's not relevant for our conversations. Mm-hmm. But I was like, we get it. <laughs> yeah, let's all pat ourselves on the back for yeah. the recent work we did a decade later after a hundred, a, a centennial yeah, of and this there's treatment. so little, like, actually being done. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada states that its purpose is not to determine guilt or innocence, but to create a historical account of the residential schools to help people heal and encourage reconciliation between Aboriginals and non-Aboriginal Canadians. I mean, that sentence alone is irritating because what they're saying is, oh, we're not saying anyone's guilty of a massive cultural genocide, but we will acknowledge that something happened in order for, you know, to make the natives as oppressed as they are. But I do think that finally acknowledging something that has had such a deep impact on Aboriginals for so many decades is a step in the right direction. It will help with the healing process, but on the other hand, it kind of feels like uh, too little too late. What can you do to, how can you possibly reconcile uh, generations of tragedy and abuse? Well, in the report, they had something like 105 recommendations, I think maybe. 95. 95, thank you. Um, and a few of them have actually been, like, kind of put into action. A lot of them, it's pending and stuff like that. Um, that's a great start. Those 95 recommendations are a great start. I think the more we talk about it, the more we're aware of it. I'm surrounded by a community of people with different opinions on this. Some good, some bad. But I think for those, you know, affected to find peace, it needs to come from within. 
I'm surrounded by a strong, intelligent, traditional people in my life. Um, even if it's just cheering them on from afar, like on Facebook. <laughs> They're investing in our culture by learning and practicing the traditional language and skills. Um, there's a two-year intensive program in my community to help rebuild the language and culture. And what I find is so amazing is that there's just all kinds of people, young, old, different walks of life. They're all attending this program. And what makes me really happy is that they're taking what they learn and they're passing it on to future generations. You have like toddlers who, you know, speak more Mohawk than elders. And it's just, it's amazing. Um, and I think that's exactly what the community needs. Listen, okay. Nope. Political party is perfect. But you know that I did a lot of volunteering with the Green Party um, in this recent election. I was a campaign manager. And the reason I had chose to align with the Green Party was actually because of something very, very specific. Um, and that was their dedication to um, Indigenous reconciliation. They didn't even use that word. Uh, they used a different word that I remember being super proud of. It was much more empowering. Um, and uh, as much as the NDP, I won't get into the politics, but they, they had some good stuff too. But the Green Party had something very unique, which is that they actually wanted to create a confederation of governments. So that the each nation had its own government, okay, and it was on equal funding with the Canadian government, and they could create their own laws and such. Um, and I thought that was such a cool concept. I've never heard that because yeah, it's it's hard to imagine like how there's so many nations in Canada. There would be all those different governments, you know. I know indigenous indigenous people voting are one of the lowest um, one of the lowest demographics of voters. Voters disenfranchised. Yeah, absolutely. Do we know any of the statistics from this recent election? Like, did they did that message get to indigenous populations? And no, did that message they, get them to the polls? No. What from what I kind of could see, it's been a while now. Before, from what I could see and from what I heard from some of my friends, um, was that uh, there was much more NDP support, and I do get that because the NDP. It was really a marketing thing. The NDP marketed themselves so well. Right. And Jagmeet Singh is so charming. So charming. So charming. So dreamy. <laughs> We're both blushing. <laughs> so dreamy. Elizabeth May does not have the pizzazz, and she has a problematic history. You she's know? really brilliant, though. She her, is. In writing, she's excellent. I've only yeah. read some of her books. Really? Interesting. I've read her PR books. That's so cool. Okay. Yeah, well, ex excerpts of her PR books. She she doesn't have the same marketing power, and she doesn't even have that much of a problematic history. It's some stuff on abortion and a weird tweet she put out on technology or something. <laughs> but but people really held on to it, especially because she's a woman. You know how it be for us women out here. Like mm -hmm. they will really hold on to anything to completely invalidate what we're saying. But yeah, that that's that's what went down. They mostly voted for the NDP. I'm not upset about it. The NDP is still a great party. I just think particularly for Indigenous people, the Greens had a much a stronger more platform. positive yeah platform although you know obviously this all comes back to the thing of being forced to participate in these politics that is not what their culture is and it's crazy that they have to feel their arm twisted like you gotta vote go vote to protect your rights it's like but this is not what we're supposed to be doing period the john a okay so the john a mcdonald statue downtown across from um uh Marianne elizabeth the hotel mm -hmm. has been defaced, yeah. like thrown 
it's, it's amazing like six times like mm-hmm. they cover it with red paint and like the poor guy has to clean it up it's the same guy as the city, city worker cleaning it oh up my. <laughs> because he is responsible for um he is responsible he is he was the first prime minister he was the person responsible and put in who began residential schools based on um the recommendations of that previous general that I read his uh, read his quotations. So um, he wrote the recommendations, and John A. McDonald's implemented them into his position. He was our first prime minister, and um, other than residential schools, like there are very obvious accounts of him giving like blankets covered in smallpox deliberately to indigenous people. And um, in 2018, a statue of John A. McDonald was removed from outside Victoria Victoria City Hall. Um, as part of the city's program for reconciliation with First Nations. A biographical online article about McDonald was deleted from the Scottish government website in August 2018. A spokesperson for the Scottish government said, we acknowledge the controversy around Sir John A. McDonald's legacy and the legitimate concerns expressed by Indigenous communities. So in 20... Scotland. Yeah. (laughs) He was from there. Like, he grew up there. Like... I don't know what, how they just like disowned him. They're like, let's put him in charge of this country. <laughs> He's like, hey, uh, who's, who's available? <laughs> um, the Canadian Historical Association voted to remove McDonald's name from their prestigious Sir John A. McDonald's Prize, best for scholarly, uh, best scholarly book about Canadian history. Historian James Dashuk acknowledges Sir John A. McDonald's contribution as a founding figure of Canada. However, he he states he built the country, but he built the countries on the backs of Indigenous people. So other people, he was a crazy misogynist, and he was like, I mean, he was really, really pro-capitalism. So his heart was not with low-income people either. He was really just one of your your classic white dudes who didn't care about nothing but money. Cough, cough, this. He did. He did separate Canada from. Britain. He was the first prime minister. He saw a future yeah, for Canada separate and he wanted to grow the country, but that just didn't include the marginalized communities. Yeah. I find it interesting. Okay, so first Amherst Street downtown Montreal was changed because I don't know who Amherst was, but he wasn't, he he's... Oh, sorry, just, I did not know the street changed, but I remember Amherst Street. Yeah, it's no longer that. They changed it because Amherst was one of McDonald's friends as an indigenous anti-indigenous, but Amherst was less honorable, so he was easier to strip his street. Now, we haven't removed the statue of John A. McDonald downtown. Now, it's been covered in paint six times, and when I walked by it in February, it wasn't there, and then and I remember it not being there and I thought oh they must have taken it down that's great but then before this before this podcast when I was doing research I didn't find any formal articles that they had taken it down maybe they were just cleaning it but they clean it in front of the thing so I don't know if it's down or not let's assume it's not because I feel like it would have been covered it would have been covered but it wasn't there last time I walked by it Mm -hmm. but I think it's interesting how in the U.S. like they worship their founding fathers yeah, and Why they don't were we, slave masters as well. They were, like, just as awful. human and awful mm-hmm. as McDonald. Why Why have we turned on him as a country? And, like, the country has acknowledged it because Montreal, you know, Montreal hasn't taken down the statue. But, but we all know. In many facets, in many other provinces, they have removed his titles and his honor. But, like, he is one of the founding fathers of Canada. He created democracy. Like, he brought democracy. He didn't create democracy, but he... He brought democracy to Canada and he started this this democratic 
prime minister system. Yeah, he brought democracy to the settlers of Canada. I was asked if I think that the statue of John A. Macdonald should be taken down. I say yes, it should have been taken down long ago. I mean, he's more known for the violence inflicted on indigenous people than anything else he's done. In terms of residential schools, he just wanted to take the Indian out of the child, as if it were e as easy as beating the dirt out of a rug. I mean, clearly he succeeded in that, but there's nothing honorable about him, and yeah, it should have been taken down a while ago. And then I just wanted to mention that Pope Francis will not apologize for the Catholic Church's role in Canada's residential schools. And he said this in 2018. And I saw a really excellent YouTube clip. And it was this, this very actually handsome uh, news reporter guy who had blue eyes and he was wearing a blue tie. And it was a Toronto priest who was, he was interviewing about it. And he was like, can you tell us why Pope Francis might say this? Because he's been so apologetic and so transparent. And he's done really great things for the Vatican and the Catholic Church in terms of reconciliation and apologies. Why is this? And he failed. I, and then, like, the news anchor was like, mm, but come on, he's apologizing. Because like, his, his defense on behalf of Pope Francis was that it was he like... sets it up as like a franchise sort of thing. Like, <laughs> how someone can own a franchise. Like, okay, so there's someone who has like the master franchise, but everyone has their individual business. Like, that's what I'm, I heard. Yeah, 100%. That's a better way of explaining it than I was trying to say. And he's like, and I'm not responsible for... I'm not going to apologize. They've, you know, the people responsible have apologized. All these individual franchisees have apologized, but I'm not going to go over their heads and apologize on behalf of all of them. And then the anchor was like, um, but he did when it comes of sexual abuse in terms of the Catholic Church and all over the world. Sounds and very much like racism. And to my ear, that's how it's ringing. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like he's just saying, well, indigenous kids, they just don't have the same value. But I'm like, just so surprised that this same. is where he puts his foot down. The mindset at the time, like, human rights was just it was a thing, but not to people that didn't look like us, you know? Like, uh, the mindset at the time was like, I conquered you. That is it. You gotta banish the, the other. Yeah, exactly. The, I conquered, I conquered, and that is it. Your rights mean nothing. Your pain means nothing. We, we glossed over so many hmm. tragedies towards indigenous people. We picked one specific one residential schools. We touched upon it 10% at most. We didn't talk about the 60 scoop. 60 scoop yeah. Like there are so many things we didn't talk about. We didn't even talk about like pre-residential schools, any of the, oh boy. So it's a big malalais, putting it lightly. Right. Who is to blame? John A. McDonald? The, the uh, let me get his name. The gentleman who said that indigenous people cannot be civilized, who made the list of recommendations that John A. McDonald based the residential school system on Christopher Columbus Christopher Columbus I was gonna say that one that really? was, if, I had to, if I had to blame it on one person no Christophe Colomb our, our, our French man like oh the French Jacques Cartier or? Jacques Cartier I would really say Christopher Columbus was the big one because he actually he came when he, his brief time where he was here he was already starting stuff he was already trying to like uh, finesse, you know, like really no, just try to, try to like get more out of these people than uh, that was his goal set out by the queen. It wasn't his. It wasn't his like his mission, and it wasn't his goal. He wasn't born with this like self-driven mission. It was it was the culture derived by the queen. Yeah, I mean, my two culprits the, are pretty. Whoever abstract. the 
I think I would have to, I'm putting the blame on John A. McDonald because he, he was an idealist. Mm-hmm. He, he separated from the United Kingdom. He created Canada. If he was this idealist, I just wish he included Indigenous people. Okay, Charles Bagot made these recommendations, but you're the Attorney General of the Queen. This is Canada, and I'm sure we will continue paying taxes to you for mm-hmm. <laughs> hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. But uh, as of, I don't know. I think it's him because he's the person who put this in place. And many the reason Montreal doesn't want to take his statue down is because he is daddy of Canada. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he represents Canada. So by taking him down, you're like sort of disgracing your whole country. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. Indigenous voices need to be heard. They really, really need to be heard. And not just one, you know. It's got to yeah. be a lot Because of there are so many nations and so many communities and so many... Like with different needs, different I'm complete. We're completely umbrella umbrellaing um, First Nations. Metis, you, you put it really well. We tied a bow on it as best we could. It's yeah. a very complicated, nuanced issue, and we're two idiots that try our best. Yeah, let's just go ahead and say right here that we're both white. Both <laughs> <laughs> are indigenous, um, and our opinions on this are not even remotely as valid as someone. <sighs> I just wanted to take a minute. And thank Denise for inviting me to participate in this podcast. And also to thank everyone listening for allowing me to share my story with you. Uh, closing, a way to close this whole segment. Um, first of all, thank you so much for having me as your guest. Uh, I was so nervous and I really didn't think I had anything to say. And I didn't even think it was really my place to talk about this. But I'm, I'm so glad I got to. I didn't realize how much anger and how much I had to say about this. Because we're not saying anything new. We're just talking about what's known (laughs) or what can be found if you look true um so i wanted to end this by saying since we didn't say it at the beginning that uh, we are currently on unceded ganyigeha territory um and that uh, if all went to plan this would be their land and they would be occupying it and uh, taking care of the land as they always have having that reciprocal relationship with it that we have so much to learn from um, the word, if I'm really, I might be pronouncing this wrong, but the word in Ganyigeha for Montreal is Yodiage, uh, and, uh, I hope I'm not butchering that, but, uh, it's a beautiful place. Let's get that justice. Thank you for being here, Irene. My pleasure. Thanks. Bye. Call me in the afternoon, even by one, by one. Call me in the afternoon, even by